thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. So then, welcome to this Bible study on the book of Leviticus. We are now, this is the 14th um, talk on this book. And I hope that by now, you're starting to perhaps better appreciate the riches of Leviticus, more so than when we started. Obviously, it is not an easy book to go through, but it is a very rich book and uh, very Catholic. Tonight, we're going to continue our study of the, if you will, the portion of Leviticus that deals with the lady. We've started by looking at the definition of the family, particularly in a sexual context, uh, context, defining what is a family and what is not a family. And we've looked last week at the some of the duties that the, the lay folks must abide by. We call, we call those the duties of love. And tonight we're going to look at um, a series of chapters that collectively I'm calling punishments, diseases, and proper foods and vessels. So these continue this study of how are the lay folks to behave. And the overarching theme is that the areas of sexuality Worship and food are foundational for a holy behavior. Now, in a Catholic setting, we extend that further by talking about the virtues. We can talk about the seven vices, we can talk about the seven virtues, right? But fundamentally, for all of us here, living the faith doesn't mean only believing what Scripture teaches or only believing what the church teaches. Living the faith means also growing in the virtues. And we can't grow in the virtues randomly. We have to examine ourselves and determine which area, which virtue should we be working on. So, if you take the four natural virtues, temperance, prudence, fortitude, and justice. Temperance, prudence, fortitude, and justice. Those are the four natural virtues. And temperance deals with um, anything that resembles moderation. So, moderation in food. 
moderation in the sexual appetite, moderation in any area of our life from which we derive pleasure. That would be temperance. Justice is to give to each his due. To give to each his due. A sub-virtue under justice that is important for us is piety. Piety is to give to God what is God's, meaning proper worship. So, worshiping God properly is a matter of justice. We're just doing our duty, nothing more. Hmm? That is justice. Fortitude is the ability to persevere under duress, to continue to do what we must in order to attain a great good. Persevere under duress, not to let go, because it is tough. That is fortitude. And finally, prudence is the least understood virtue, actually, uh, particularly because we think we understand what virtue is, uh, what prudence is. We confuse uh, prudence with another with a vice, actually, which is called pusillanimity, if I'm saying it right, or pusillanimity, I don't know. Is there an English teacher here? There must be at least one. Uh, P-U-S-A-I-A-N-I-M-I-T-Y, pusillanimity, which is a behavior that prevents you from taking action when you are undecided, uh, even emotionally and you're unable to take action. So we think prudence means you must be slow. Prudence means you must be slow. You have to take your time, think things over and over and over. In fact, prudence is the exact opposite. The prudent man who is habitually prudent, habitually prudent, can act very quickly because he relied on wisdom on knowledge, on understanding, on piety, to weigh things, and in, with peace of mind, he acts. He's prudent. Hmm? Those are natural virtues. Then you can consider the three theological virtues, faith, hope, and charity. Those are called the- theological or supernatural because they're infused in our soul at the moment of baptism. We don't have them when we're born. Hence, when you're walking around, you, be aware that if somebody is unbaptized, he has not been baptized, there are supernatural faculties that this person does not have. Hence, you must exercise the greatest of all virtues, charity, caritas, divine love. Divine love. And divine love simply means loving God the way God loves us. It goes beyond piety. Piety is giving God his due. But charity goes beyond that. Hope, supernatural hope, is to believe that all things will turn unto good for you. That's the simplest and easiest way to understand the virtue 
of hope. To believe that all things will turn good for you. That everything in your life is working to your good. Another way to talk about hope would be to see everything in your life, particularly those things that bug you, particularly those things that are a cause of suffering and pain, particularly those things that scare you, as gifts. That's hope. And faith is that virtue which teaches you to trust that what God said He would do will be done. None of these come easy to us. They're not... uh, Virtues are not sort of uh, modules that you can attack on. They're not add-ons. They're not things you add to you and then suddenly you have them. Like, you know, a guy goes into a lab and then he's hit by lightning and then suddenly he turns into a superhero. You don't become virtuous like that. There is no hit by lightning to become virtuous. It's a grinding, slow, difficult process. Particularly because you're not just fighting against yourself. You're fighting against the world. And most importantly, you're fighting against the demons. Right? Hence, you have to learn the battle. You have to learn the battle. I'll give you a couple of indications here and go back to the topic at hand because I kind of strayed away from this. But this is sort of important to keep reminding ourselves of. Um, if you are going to say the rosary, watch this right before you say the rosary. Right before you're going to start to say the rosary, you're fine. As soon as you think about saying the rosary, wanting to say the rosary, there's a drop in your energy level. Boom. Kind of feel heavy. That is not just your natural tendency. There is part of you who's resisting, wanting to sit down and say a prayer where you're repeating. That's natural. But there's a part of it, to steal words from the Lord of the Rings, there is an, e- there is an evil spirit which set itself against us here. You're doing a battle. So, Part of understanding what you're dealing with is that wisdom that you receive from God to really survey the battle and understand it realistically. And then choose what you have to do. Therefore, if you are not examining yourselves on a regular basis and saying, okay, which area of my life do I need to work on? Pick one, not 15. One. You pick 15, you're not going to get anywhere. One. And if you're not conscientious about it every day, to work on that area, then how can you say that your faith is alive? What work, what talents can you bring back when God comes and asks you, I gave you these talents, what have you done with them? If you're not examining your conscience, if you're not working on that, you buried those talents. So, that is something we have to absolutely keep in mind. And in the book of Leviticus, God sort of epitomized the whole battle of virtue in talking about three major areas which are interconnected. Sexuality, worship, and food. Sexuality, worship, and food. When we uh, went to, uh, when I took my family back to Lebanon, where I'm from, we went to a site called Baalbek. And Baalbek in Phoenician means nothing more than the house of Baal. That's the name of the place, right? Baal, by the way, can mean the God, but it's also found in Scripture 
even in the Song of Songs, because it was adopted, and it simply means my Lord, right? my Baal. So a wife would call her husband my Baal. It doesn't have always that sort of dreadful connotation that we ascribe to it. Nevertheless, it is true also that there was this Lord called Baal that had a bunch of people worship him. Well, in Baalbek, it started as a Phoenician site, became an Egyptian site, it became a... um, bunch of different sites, then it became a Greek site, and finally a Roman site. So there's these layers of archaeology built on top of each other. But it is the biggest Roman ruins in the world. You can take the Athenian Parthenon, you can take the uh, Colosseum, put them side by side, and they both occupy about one-third of the whole complex. There are three temples in there. The reason I'm bringing it up because of the three temples. The first one is dedicated to Jupiter. And the temple of Jupiter was the main temple. So, people would go and worship Jupiter. Now, this is, the, this is paganism at its best. They would offer sacrifices. Then the elect, a smaller group, would transition towards the evening to the temple of Bacchus, who, as you know, is the god of wine. In fact, in Lebanon, there is a, quite an extensive family called by that name. Now, when we were there, the guy told us when they closed the door, the massive door to the temple, the top part was left open. So when the sun set, it created like a disco environment in there by the lighting. So you can have an idea what they were doing, right? Eating and dancing and having, right? And then as the night moved on, they transitioned to the temple of Aphrodite. I Do I need to pay the picture? Yeah. So there were these... Stones in this place, each 400 ton. 400 ton, each stone. And then my son asked the guide, well, why don't you just, instead of pushing those stones, oh yeah, it took sl- slaves were pushing the stone. And it would take, and they were able to push that stone about half an inch during one day. And then at night, they were chained to, uh, they were standing chained. There are 80,000 slaves who died there building this complex. It took 150 years. So my son said, well, why don't we just, you know, use rocks and then build the, the, the whole surface? Why bring those stones? The answer was, the Romans wanted to show they were the most powerful empire in the world. Right? That construct, therefore, of sex, food, and paganism are interrelated. We don't necessarily tend to think as a food as something that is spiritually dangerous, but gluttony is a mortal sin. Beyond gluttony, there are concerns about your spiritual strength that can be sapped by food. So, just keep that in mind. Now, let's begin with chapter 20. Chapter 20 takes the content of chapter 18, which we've seen already, and reformulates that by adding punishments. Chapter 18 is apodictic in the sense that it lists the laws. Okay, you're not going to do, you're not going to see the nakedness of your wife's sister, she's your wife's sister, and your wife's sister's daughter, and your daughter, and this and then the other, but there were no punishment associated with that. In chapter 20, if you do this, this will happen. It's casuistic in style. It's legal. God gives the series of punishments associated with these um, uh, infractions to the law. And there are essentially two sets, one which are capital in nature and others which are not. 
So in, in, there are a number of actions that one can commit, and the result of that is death. And there are others where the result of their action is in being cut off, being excommunicated, sent out of the community. So here's a reference, for instance, if you have a conversation with someone who's asking you, well, you Catholic talk about um, mortal sin and venial sin. Where in Scripture is there a reference? There are some also in the Gospel of St. John, in, his letter, in the letter of St. John also, about certain sin that kill and others don't. But also you can refer back to the book of Leviticus right here. Certain sins had a, a capital punishment, others did not. So um, that indicates that there are differences in evil. There, there is a gradation of evil acts. Not all evil is comparable, just as not all good acts are comparable. Right? And obviously, the one that um, are of the, um, of the uh, mortal kind are the ones that deal with, to begin with, and this is how the chapter opens, with idolatry. So, the Lord warns them against the cult of Molech. M-O-L-E-C-H. Now, that sounds like a foreboding name. And sometimes people might want to think of it almost like a name of a demon. Now, maybe it is. I don't know. But just so that you understand where it comes from, Molech is a derogatory way of saying Malak, which means king. Okay? So, Melki, Melki, Zedek, right, is Malak Sadik, which means rightful king. Melki, Malak, Molech, same deal, king. Okay? It, um, presumably, that Molech is a shortening of a deity that was worshipped in Syria and in other areas, and it was called, um, um, essentially, uh, Malak Haddad. And um, uh, it was a specific deity for which uh, some group in Syria and other places sacrificed children. Now, children's sacrifice is, was uh, done in extreme circumstance in various places in the ancient world, particularly for, uh, for, uh, in order to gain military victory. Okay, and I'll give you some even references in the scriptures where Jewish kings did the same. So, there is an opening reference where God is warning them against that particular cult because children are sacrificed in that cult. And then it is followed by a prohibition against necromancy, which is essentially attempting to speak with the dead. Okay? Uh, on this topic, just you've got to understand two things. Um, there is no way for us to speak to the dead. We cannot, on our own, speak to the dead. There is no landline. There is no wireless connection. All right? Therefore, if somebody ends up in a situation where he or she is saying, I saw my grandma or my uncle or my deceased husband, or right? That's a person who may have an emotional need that is either being satisfied by his own imagination or by something else altogether. So particularly if you've had loved ones 
who are departed, and if these loved ones show up in your dreams, do not ascribe value to those dreams. Do not. Because you would be opening yourselves up to a grave danger. You must see it not from the perspective of the departed person. You understand when we die, you, you have to realize this is really hard for us to understand. But when we die, any of the emotional attachments that we had, the way we have them now, now dissipates. Things change drastically when you cross over. doesn't mean you are now disinterested. It doesn't mean that you don't care. But the emotions dissipate. Because emotions are tied to our body. And you left that behind when you crossed over. Do you understand? So, any of that notion must be absolutely shunned. Because these people who died don't have any power to talk to you. Okay? Nor do you have power to talk to them. Therefore, if that is happening, someone is masquerading. Someone is pretending to be that loved one. So, necromancy was also condemned. And then what is very interesting is that there is a connection that is established between pagan worship and sexual degeneracy. And then both of those are regarded as causes for exile. Now, this bears a couple of comments. Um, paganism, see, just as all the virtues are connected, all the vices are connected. And paganism, by its nature, is self-centered. It is centered on us. And when something is centered on us, we feel alone because we don't have the power to make ourselves happy. Okay? We on our own do not have the power to make ourselves happy. If we did, we'd all be living on islands all by ourselves. But we don't. As soon as this happens, there is this hunger that yawns at us. And instead of being fed by what is true and beautiful, it is fed by substitute. And sexuality becomes the substitute for grace. Because it has such a powerful drive. And it's connected to life. So you can see how even today, oddly, those who are connected on the internet, those who are on Facebook, those who are texting, are alone. Because all of that digital connection doesn't give you family. So there is a rise in loneliness as this sort of digital communication is going up. If the digital communication leads to people getting together, meeting face-to-face, -face, sharing the same values, doing something constructive, that's wonderful. But if it only stops there, it is unable to satisfy the human heart. Right? So, therefore, there needs to be something that compensates. And now, in some studies, in some of the states, uh, Facebook has been cited in one-third of all divorce cases. Because people go on Facebook, tries to find their teenage hubby from when they were in school, 
get this conversation going. And event, it, evidently, since they are unable to have a, a real relationship, it veers off to the only thing that uh, remains, which is sexuality, and then end up having an affair, and then leads to a divorce, and it's a mess. So, anything that is related to the cult of Molik, anything dealing with necromancy, anything with sexual degeneracy in one way or shape or form, whether it's homosexual or bestiality or any of that, is met with a penalty death. They're put to death. Obviously, this is the natural law. The Old Testament is the natural covenant. It's not the supernatural one, but it is a symbol. It points to the supernatural one, and hence anything that leads to physical death in a supernatural case leads to the spiritual death, right, which is called the second death, which means hell. Incidentally, people have a very uh, comforting idea about hell. They kind of think only about the fire. That's the least of your concern. I think the biggest concern you would have to have about hell is the fact that there is no space. People think in hell you can kind of stroll around or find a little corner to scream all by yourself. No. That freedom is taken away from you. People are piled on top of each other. And everybody's screaming and swearing all around you. Forever. Just meditate on that. This is a reality that we have to deal with. And we're dealing with it right now, whether we want it or not. We're making choices that determine where we're going to end up. Okay? Not trying to scare you, because scare tactic never lead to conversion. That's not the point. But we can't ignore reality. Right? We cannot ignore reality. I mean, having the fear of the Lord, not the fear of hell, is what we want. Because we can't send ourselves to hell. None of us can. The devil can send you to hell. Only the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the master of hell. You've got to understand that. Not the devil. He took that away from him. He is the Lord of hell. Because St. Paul tells us, every knee above the earth, on the earth, and under the earth will, will um, have to uh, bend before the Lord Jesus Christ. Everywhere. That's what you're dealing with. So, this is, then there are a number of other offenses which concern violations for which the penalty is being cut off from the Israelite community. They're sent away, they're treated like the Gentiles. Right? Hence, it's a lesser uh, pain. I'm not going to go through the details of this. What is really key for us is to understand that in God's eyes, not all evil is the same. But seen negatively, we can only focus on the penalty. Which is good. Right? It's good. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But we want to stand there. We want to move forward. Hence we can see it positively. Meaning see the opposite of what is being said here. So instead of thinking about worshipping Molech, think about how God treats those who worship Him in truth. Instead of thinking about those who break the sexual law, think about those who celebrate sexuality within the covenant of marriage. And how God sees this. Right? Instead of thinking about those who commit infractions that are sent away, think about the communion of the saints. Right? And all those who live in the joy of heaven. So you can 
look at it the other way and understand what God is doing here, here is catering to the way we think after the fall. Because all of us respond better to fear than to praise. Somebody praise you, the, the general tendency is to, to doubt. But if somebody puts before you something that's scary, you're going to remember this. Right? So there's psychology at work here. But the point isn't just, okay, I'm God, I'm going to take the big stick, I'm going to make you really afraid. No. This is just a tool, so let's not confuse it with what God wants. He wants our love. He wants us to be holy. Remember, this is his purpose. He could have, after the fall of Adam and Eve, sent all of us to hell. And that would have been justice. He could have not done a thing, which means all of us would be condemned to hell. And that would be justice. The fact that he intervened, the fact that he sent his son to die on the cross for us, tells you otherwise. He wants something else. And in Leviticus, he's communicating what he wants. It is done in a way to attract attention. But don't let the, the process or the communication hide away God who is a loving father. And who cares very, very much about his children and wants his children back home. You understand? So I mentioned to you earlier about this group of people who lived in Syria. They were called the Sephirvites. And they came from a locality in Syria in the vicinity of Hama. And they were known to burn their children as offerings to gods whose names included Melek as a component, such as Adramelech, which is a misspelling of Adad Melek, which is Adad or Haddad is a king. And, and uh, nevertheless, I'm not here harping on Syria. I think it is something that was prevalent across all the, uh, all the ancient world. And the, the idea behind it was that you could essentially acquire power by sacrifice. Right? And it's still prevalent today. It's still prevalent today. We've just laicized the whole concept. We took away the sort of religious aspect of it. So a woman wants power over her body. She has an abortion. So abortion is the price to pay to be able to have the right to decide what I'm going to do with my body, which means power over my destiny. Right? That's the price. Child pays the price. So understand that in um, seen from God's perspective, abortion is a sacrifice to Molech. It is a sacrifice offered to a demon. And this is why I keep repeating this to all of you. Do not simply assume that because a child has been aborted that this child is in heaven. It just does not work this way. We need baptism to go to heaven. Furthermore, be aware that a mother who takes her child to an abortion mill is cursing that child. And that's a curse imposed by a mother, which is very powerful. It takes a lot to break it. So these issues have to be addressed before we can just happily conclude, which we would all desire, obviously, that all these children are in heaven somehow. But if the church could, the church would have done that already. 
This is why the Holy Father said, we leave them in the mercy of God. Because we cannot figure a way to explain how somebody can go to heaven without baptism. And we cannot apply to them baptism of desire, right? Because those kids are unable to make a decision at this point, or baptism by blood, which means to give your life for somebody else. None of those arguments hold in their case. So how do you, how do you argue the case? We don't know. So, so the physical aspect of uh, abortion is horrendous. The spiritual aspect is terrifying. Now, the interesting thing I'll point out in this chapter 20 is that the way God says that he is going to punish someone, he will say, I will set my face against him. That's sort of the idiom, the expression used. I will set my face against him. Right? And the interesting thing is that in case the, the community refuses to recognize the sinful behavior and take action against that person, then God will set his face against that person and his family. Not just the person, but the family as well. This is another aspect that we have such a hard time with, is the connectedness. We would love for the faith to be a one-to-one relationship between God and I. And I have nothing to do with the others, and the others have nothing to do with me. It would be a lot easier, but it just does not work this way. It does not work this way. Now, obviously, we're all happy there are saints. See? On the flip side, we're really happy there are saints, so we can ask them to pray for us. But what we're not happy about is that when our sins affect others. But God is just. It goes both ways. Holiness affects all of us, but so is sinfulness. Therefore, there are consequences for us and our families. Hence, when people, for instance, in the public um, court talk about homosexuality, they think, well, well you know, a lot of them think, well, what's the big deal? Let them get, you know, get married. What they're not understanding is that if you look at it covenantally, meaning if you look at it from the perspective that God, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of Lords, King of Kings, is the ruler of all nations, and all nations will stand judgment before him, these actions have a consequence. Because they offend him. And if we do not take action, do not, I don't mean violent action or beating people, or that's not at all I'm talking about. Right? But if we don't take prayerful action, if we're not offering sacrifices, if we're not worshiping God in truth, if we're not asking him for his mercy, and asking him to, right? if we're not doing all these things we're supposed to do, and speaking when we are called to speak, then we're complicit. And that means the entire society will be affected. The entire society will be affected. If you see it this way, it becomes less of a sense of loss. It's less of a sense of we're losing the battle. More of a sense of wonder and mystery. Lord, what are you up to? What are you up to? Because all that is happening right now in the world, all that is happening, even the things that we consider to be really bad, all of that will work to the greater glory of God and to His church. All of that will benefit the church. All of that will be seen as a good later. Not the thing itself, but what will come out of it will be providentially good. 
And this is why God allows all of this to happen, because it's going to eventually benefit the church. If you see it this way, you have a peace of mind. This is not about desperation or, you know, we're losing the battle or it's, whoa, Lord, you're allowing all this to happen. You have blessings, you have curses. God punishes, God's rewards. He's the judge. Remember in scriptures, God says, forgive your enemies, right? True? Jesus tells us, forgive. But scripture also says, vengeance, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will reward. Don't forget that side of thing also. God will take action. And when He takes action, stand in awe because it is beyond anything you can even imagine. The same word is actually used in the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 9, verse 51. When the days drew near for Him to be received up, He set His face to go to Jerusalem. What a scary verse, this one. He set His face that is a statement of divinity because he set his face is only used about God in the scriptures. Only about God. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. And in Luke, in the Gospel of St. Luke, the, um, the um, apocalyptic passages that speak of the end of the world in St. Luke speak less of the end of the world than they speak about the destruction of Jerusalem which happened in the year 7080. And you can hear it here. He set his face. You see this, it echoes into Leviticus. And it brings about all of chapter 18 and 20, and then the last chapter we're going to hit with when we talk about the blessings and the curses. All right. So as I said earlier, the very act of disobedience to God by members of the community effectively defiled the sanctuary which stood within the settlement. And that's the key to the whole thing. It is not only about the sinfulness of the people, but their sinfulness, whether sexual or food-related or worship-related, impact the sanctuary and defile it, which is the presence of God. And hence, anything that impacts the sanctuary, there's a reaction you understand? So, in this is presumably one reason why St. Thomas has always taught or teaches that the efficacy of the Mass, obviously the, the, mass, the Mass's graces are infinite because they're gods, but the, the way these, these uh, graces are channeled down to us depend on the holiness of the reigning pontiff, on the holiness of the bishop, on the holiness of the priest, and the holiness of the congregation. Now think about that. Okay? Think about that. This is what that means. The sinfulness of the congregation obviously cannot impact the liturgy or the tabernacle in an absolute sense, but they impact the flow of graces that would come to us. Here's one concrete example. In the series of apparitions of Our Lady in Fatima, there was one apparition where the children 
were prevented from going to the cove when Our Lady told them to do so because the police took them to interrogate them. And Our Lady told them because of this, the miracle will be less than what it was supposed to be. Okay? There is a direct impact. So when you put all that together, you kind of understand that what happens is that the Mass is unable to provide graces to the whole community, which is then unable to sanctify the world, which then accelerates the process of straying away for the world, which we know will lead eventually to a trigger of the curses in their full form and therefore lead to the destruction to that particular city, country, civilization, what have you. And out of that, there is a rebirth. Out of that, there is a rebirth by which the church is now able to preach the good news and bring souls to God. If you look at where we are right now in the United States, we cannot say we are there because there is a fight that is going on. People are still fighting for the right to life. They're fighting for the family. There are people who are coming into the church. There are people who are seeking the truth, and it's still happening. And as long as this is happening, God will allow it to continue, right, for the good of the elect. But when, let's say, this ceases to happen, the fight is over. I'm not saying this is going to happen, by the way. I'm not being prophetic here. I'm saying, suppose, if, God forbid, we get to a point where there is no more fight for the pro-life movement, there's no more fight for marriage, anything goes, right, and therefore, a society is unable to be fertile spiritually and allow people to come into the faith, then God, out of his mercy, right, would put an end to the society. Because if he doesn't, then it is his full wrath to allow children to be born in a society that is without grace. Because those kids will go to hell. Do you understand how the plan of salvation works it's not magical it makes sense when you see from God's perspective what is really important heaven is important hell is important everything else leads to one or the other hence everything else is looked and considered from this perspective we tend to forget about heaven and hell and consider things in terms of short-term reward. What am I going to get out of it tomorrow? Will it fulfill my dreams, which are terrestrial, earthly? Right? Here's one test that I'd like to run. Um, if I were to tell you that by next Sunday, in this church, there'll be... $100 million by the altar. First come, first serve. Cash. This other church, right? If you go there, there is a holy priest who has received a grace from God so that when you go to confession with him, you'll have a complete absolution of all your sins and all temporal punishment due to sin. What do you think people will go? Do you get it? Okay. So that tells you 
how earthly people think versus heavenly-minded people. Right? So, meditate on that. Where would you go? And I don't want you to tell me. But, honestly, sit down and think about that. If I were to give you $100 million, $100 million, $100 million, or does this priest you can go to for confession? Where would you go? Where our heart is? Right? Yeah. Think about that. Okay. Let's move on. In chapter 13 and 14, there is a whole conversation that deals with the purification of skin diseases. So now we're moving away from the punishment due to sin to something a little different, but it's still connected. We don't think necessarily of the priestly um, ministry as a healing ministry, but it is. In fact, Jesus instructed his apostles to heal. Right? And so there are many of us look with suspicion at a healing mass. As if it is a strange thing. But healing is part of the priestly ministry. It is part and parcel of the ministry in Leviticus as it is in the New Testament. So in chapter 13 14, there is a pres- it, it, these chapters prescribe the role of the Israelite priesthood in diagnosing and purifying persons afflicted with a skin disease known as tsarat. This disease can also contaminate fabrics and leather, as well as plastered or mud-covered building stones. Now, the identification of this skin disease with leprosy is unlikely, if by leprosy we mean Hansen's disease. Right? Because the symptomatology, the symptoms given in these chapters simply do not match leprosy the way we understand it. To put it succinctly, there were two types of skin disease. The one, which, think of it as rash, which were, which could be healed. Right? Those meant that whomever suffered from that kind of, that type of skin disease was quarantined for, for some period of time, and if the, uh, the priest could examine this person and see that this disease is actually healing, the person would be readmitted into the community. He would not be considered impure. But if that skin disease, that condition is not healing, then this person would be cast off. It would be, he would be sent away from the community and, until the healing would occur and he would be considered impure. Now, there is the, the disease could be acute and transient in humans, in fabrics and leathers, and there was a purification rite for a person who was healed after a transient uh, um, um, incident, after he had that disease for a little while. And um, the key thing for us to keep in mind is something that the Israelites understood and we, something we have a problem with, is that the disease was considered as a punishment from God. In our case, we've completely disconnected disease and God. They're not related. God has nothing to do with it. We never think about God intervening 
by sending somebody a disease. Now, in the ancient testament, in the Old Testament I mean, the disease was always considered as a punishment from God. You're sick, God is punishing you. That's the end of it. In the New Testament, it can go one of two ways. It is either a punishment, or it is a sharing in his, suffer- in his suffering for the salvation of souls. Right? Uh, examples that we can give is St. Therese of Little Child Jesus, St. Bernadette Subiru, St. Uh, Rebecca in Lebanon, who suffered beyond anything we can imagine. Those are pure souls whose suffering was redemptive. They joined their suffering with that of Christ. For us, when we are suffering from an ailment or another, that would be a good time to examine ourselves. And that would be a great moment for us to practice the virtue of humility instead of saying, why me? To say, why not me? Instead of saying, I don't deserve this, to say, I deserve worse. Instead of being afflicted and depressed, to rejoice in thinking that that is a gift because that particular suffering I'm going through right now is God's loving way of helping me not go to hell. If we can understand that being sick is part and parcel of our journey to heaven. And if we can be in conversation with God through this sickness, then the Holy Spirit, the Consoler, the Advocate, the Protector, will give us the strength required to bear it. And I don't mean by that to bear it as grinding our teeth and being upset and angry. I mean to make it fruitful. So we transition from a situation where the sin is a punishment to a situation where this where I'm sorry, where the where the the suffering is a punishment to a situation where the suffering is redemptive. Because we have accepted God's hand. We have bowed our heads before His will. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? This is a very important area, and we, I'll, I'll tell you right now, all of us will suffer before we die. All of us will. There is not a question of, I'm going to be able to escape that. Nobody will escape that. We're going to suffer before we die. How do we prepare for this? The little things in your life, those little gifts that God has been sending you day after day, the little annoyances, the people that bug you, the people that annoy you, the things that you don't like done, if you, instead of running away from them, bear with them, accept them lovingly, and say, this is God's gift for me, you're training yourself in accepting the greater gifts that God has for you. That's the way of the cross. We have to be realistic. And take God seriously. And not assume it's going to be, you know, easy. You know the word easy is not there in Scripture? 
Jesus said, my yoke is light, but my yoke, not my bag of licorice, not my cake, my yoke, it's a yoke. So, so I don't want you to think that punishment means necessarily God is uh, showing his wrath against someone. Punishment can also be an act of mercy because he's allowing someone to make up for past sins. You understand that the pain on its own does nothing. Right? Pain is not redemptive. Yeah? Poverty is not redemptive. What is redemptive is the offering of those things. That make them redemptive. Yeah? That's key. So as long as we're walking with God day by day, He will help us bear this cross all the way to the end. But it's there. Okay. Now, let's talk a little bit about the laws of kashrut, which is really the proper foods and vessels. You know that there was a whole series of laws given about food. What can you eat? What you can't eat? And when you read it, it sounds confusing. God gave them a series of injunctions. You can eat this, you cannot eat that. Why? Why would he do that? And what does it mean? What does it mean for us? Does it mean anything? So, Leviticus 11, I'm jumping to chapter 11, so we went from 20, 13, 14, 11. And the reason I'm following this order is because it sort of logically presents it for us, starting with the family, like we did it, moving to the, 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 the community at large, talking about all the sexual-related stuff, all the worship-related stuff, and now talking about the food stuff. Okay? Leviticus 11 is one of the two major collections of dietary laws in the Torah, the law, the other being Deuteronomy 14. We're going to see when we do the book of Deuteronomy. Chapter 11 ordains a system of dietary laws that specify what an Israelite may or may not eat as food. Now, what can they eat? All that grows in the soil of the earth may be eaten. If you're a vegetarian, you're golden. Okay? Vegan, yes. I'm not very uh, familiar with the um, subcategorization in that field. Then there was a complex regimen of permitted and forbidden types that governed the consumption of air, land, and water creatures. Okay? Leviticus 11 deals with one of the primary concerns of the priesthood, the impurity that results from physical contact with that which is intrinsically impure and which may be transmitted to vessels and foodstuffs. Again, part of the problem is that if you have an impure food that is put into a vessel, the vessel becomes impure. If that vessel is connected with the temple, with a tent, you've now contaminated the tent. Right? You see how everything points back to worship. Everything. Without this liturgical worship, if you take that out, it, it, be, it becomes confusing. Well, what's the point of all of this? Well, that's what it is. Holiness must be achieved through worship, and worship must be holy. Okay. 
Now, as I said earlier, food, sex, and worship are connected. Guess what is also connected with the three? The land. Okay. What is the land? Remember what we said? What is the land? Why is the land important? Why is it economy? Thank you. It's the economy. Anytime you hear the land, replace economy. Don't, don't go into sort of a romantic notion, oh, the land. You know, a cottage and a peaceful thing. That's not what the point is. This is a pe- these are people trying to eat. The land is the source of livelihood. It's the economy. God is saying something really simple. You live according to my laws as far as the family goes. You behave sexually the right way. You eat the right thing. And you worship the right way. I'll take care of the economy for you. Okay? You don't do those things. This is going to get messed up. Does that resonate with anybody? Yeah? Okay. So as part of the economy, you have obviously the environment. The environment getting messed up? Yeah. You bet. Does this mean it can never be fixed? No, it can. God is in charge here. Not Mother Earth. Okay? See, this is the interesting thing about being a Catholic. Hope. The virtue of hope. Outside of Catholicism, what do you have? Go check the movies right now in theater. They're all doom and gloom. All about oblivion and destruction and apocalyptic nonsense. The world is coming to an end. There's nothing we can do. Why? They don't have hope. All they see is the physical reality of sin deployed before them. But they do not see that where sin is, grace is there even more abundantly. They cannot see that. Therefore, they have no hope. Do you understand? Yeah. So that's the power of the faith. But unless we worship in truth and spirit, we can't fix this problem. So those of us who are tempted by activism, and to me, activism means doing good, good actions without a deep spiritual life. This is it. That's activism for me. If you're spending more your time doing than praying, you're an activist. That's it. Right? And it's prayer that saves the world, not action. Prayer. Okay. So, a triad of religious sins emerges. Dietary, cultic, and sexual all associated with impurity and all linked to the destiny of the Israelites as a people distinguished from our other nations. Ezekiel summarized this in one of his severe condemnation of the people. This is chapter 33, verses 25 and 26 from the book of Ezekiel. Thus says the Lord God, you eat meat with the blood, which is forbidden. You raise your eyes to your fetishes, which is paganism, and you shed blood which is probably sacrifice. Yet you expect to possess the land. You have relied on your sword. You have committed abominations. 
You have all defiled other men's wives, yet you expect to possess the land. Okay, the, he can, if he were to stand right here, he would say these guys were saints compared to us today. Right? Every teenager, on average, every teenager watches about 60 porn clip a week. It's a $4 billion industry in California. Mainly California. This is where most of the porn industry is. Yet, we expect to possess the land. Okay. So, in a positive sense, again, I don't want to focus on the negative here. The, the laws of the Torah make the observance of a dietary regimen essential to the achievement of the collective humanness of the people of Israel. This is a Jewish commentator. The humanness, meaning that unless you control your appetite and you control all your appetites, including the one dealing with food or with sexuality, you cannot be human. Therefore, practice some form of fasting, some form of restraint. Constantly train yourself in those things. For the love of God. This still applies to us today. This is how the non-priests can contribute to the attainment of holiness. Living the virtues makes a virtuous society. Those who transgress against the laws of purity in their own land, where they may choose between obedience to God's law or perverseness, must eventually, inevitably, commit the same sins in the lands of their enemies. So you go from bad to worse. So you're going to go through exile. And when you go there, you're going to commit the same sins. And actually we see it in quite a few Catholics who come to the United States. They come as Catholics. And a generation goes by and they are no longer Catholics. Right? They adopt the ways of the world. Because it's cool and it's hip. I've ever told you that, right? Hell is cool. Yeah. Now, here's the interesting thing. I'm going to take five more minutes to finish this, to wrap up this. In Genesis 9, verse 2 to 3, God allowed humans to use living creatures as food. The fear and the dread of you shall be upon all the beasts of the earth and upon all the birds of the sky. Everything with which the earth is astir and upon all the fish of the sea, every creature that lives shall be yours to eat as with the green grasses, I give you all these. In Genesis, there were no impure food. Everything was given. What happened between Genesis and Leviticus? Right? Nimrod happened, the father of paganism. As soon as paganism entered the picture, worship of false gods, sacrifices were assigned to worship of false gods, and there were... And all the vices were then magnified, including food. Right? So, why is it that certain animals were considered impure and others considered pure? You can look at it and say, all right, there are some rules such as they have split hoofs and they chew their cud. Anything that has split hoofs and chew their cud is clean as food. Okay. But, or, all right, now that makes it even more mysterious. 
The point being what? Right? So this, these two criteria are not enough for us. They're just pointers. Right? In a deeper context. Um, it'd be, again, if I were to tell you, if I were to say, uh, I'm not in Kansas anymore. If I say that, I'm bringing a whole context into this conversation, right? But if you don't know what I'm talking about, you might think I'm crazy. When I say I'm not in Kansas anymore, I'm referring to a movie in which this girl, right, ends up somewhere else. It's completely different from where she was. Right? So if I stepped into, a, let's say, a Catholic church, and it's built in a very strange way, I might say to you, I'm not in Kansas anymore. You'll understand what I'm trying to say. If you've never seen the movie, or know what I'm talking about, you think, I'm nonsensical, right? I think these two references are like that. God is simply giving them two pointers for a much wider context. What is that context? Okay. I had more to say about the pig, but I'm going to skip it because we don't have time. And the, and the case of the kid goat. The case of the kid goat is really interesting because they're not allowed to sacrifice it, but they're allowed to eat it, which just makes it a really very interesting situation. Right? And there are really reasons for it. But how do we understand all of this? Well, here's the bottom line. They're allowed to eat pure animals. Think about it. The whole premise is that you don't want you to touch anything impure. Therefore, if an animal eats something that is impure, that which the animal ate might end up in you, making you impure. Hence, what you want is a set of simple regulation that says, animals on that side of the fence eat pure stuff. Therefore, they're pure. When you eat them, you stay pure. And animals on that side of the fence do not. This is not a scientific truth. It is also based on their understanding of what these animals do and how they behave. What God is doing here is working with them and giving them a set of regulations that make sense and that is practical. Most of animals that have hooves and chew their, their, their cud eat what? What do they eat? They eat grass. None of them are carnivores. Therefore, since by the first rule we said and you can eat anything that grows from the earth. Well, that's what they eat. Hence, they're pure. So if you eat them, you're pure, provided you don't take the blood, which is the life, right? Do you see that? So it's a very simple and practical set of regulations that God gave him. Not exhaustive. There may have been other animals, right, that don't, are not hoofed and don't chew their cud, but eat only pure stuff, like maybe, I don't know, the platypus. I don't know what the platypus eats, right? If they've come across one of those, maybe, right? But it wasn't exhaustive, but it was practical for them. You understand? That's what this whole series of regulations is all about. Preserve purity. Do not eat something that will make you impure. Now, can, can we take these and translate them into something, by way of closing, that makes sense for us today? Can we eat something that is impure? Do we have impure food? We've become very savvy, haven't we now? Right? 
from a natural sense can't, connect, can't contain hydrogenated oil, can't contain, contain this, and if you eat that, it does this, and if you eat that thing, it's going to get your ears to grow, and that thing will make your nose fall apart, and that stuff you shouldn't eat because of, right? We have a very complex set of regulations around food. We have a whole bunch of diet that tell you you should eat this way or that way, or if not, you're going to die tomorrow. Don't we? We're very similar, in fact. This is what we're talking about. If somebody were to look at, say, the Atkins diet, and is removed from the medical reasoning behind it, whether true or not, that's not the point. I'm not advocating for or against. It's not my point here. My point is, there is a rationale about the Atkins diet. Suppose you don't have that. All you have is a list of stuff that people are eating. How do you make sense of this? This is what we're confronted with here. You understand? Same idea. But beyond that, beyond the natural stuff that... I mean, bottom line, people are going to die from being scared of dying by eating food. Because no matter what you eat or touch, somebody's going to tell you this is going to kill you. Okay? But is there a supernatural impact to the food we eat? Yes. There is. Absolutely. If we are not eating with moderation, and if we are not eating with moderation, it comes to price. To price. The priciest uh, restaurant, I think, is in Las Vegas. It's uh, $800 for two people. Is food presented to you, this is without drinks, by the way, is food presented to you at $800 800 times better than food you get at a regular restaurant here? So th- this is sinful in its behavior when you spend that kind of money on food. You understand? So this is how you take... You, you understand these were regulations for them saying stay pure. Okay, that was on the physical level. For us, we have to stay pure spiritually. Okay? So observe the laws that prevent you from being falling into gluttony. Don't munch before you eat. That's part of gluttony. Don't eat more than you need. Stop when you're not hungry. Eat slowly. Let others be served before you. That sort of thing. We have also behavior that leads to the same place, even though the restrictions and regulations do not apply today as they did back then. So, by way of conclusion, through this whole part, we see emerging not just the negative, the the don't do these things, but foremost, the positive, be holy. I, your Lord, am holy, and you will be holy, and I'm going to give you a way to live that will lead you to me. That's the key. Think about that. Don't take it for granted. God could have hidden his face from us and never spoke to anyone, and we would not have a Bible today, we would not have a church, and we would not know how to go home. He could have done that. Remember this. He didn't. He gave us a book of life. He gave us the church to guide us. He gave us the sacraments. Let us show ourselves true children of the Lord. God bless you. Let's uh, finish with a word of prayer, and then we can take some questions while we're enjoying munchies.
questions. Yes. So grace is communicated to others by others, right? God works through us to bring grace to others. You have a child, you bring him to church to have him baptized. The child on his own can't make it. If you don't baptize the child, the child may die before being baptized, may grow without the faith, may decide never to be baptized, right? If you live in a society that is set against the faith, where people have even forgotten about the faith, or considered completely irrelevant, and focus the children on other goals, those children will move away from the faith. They will stray away. Therefore, salvation is not made available to them. That's what I'm meaning. The society becomes fundamentally vitiated, and it's unable to be a channel of grace that allows others to find the Lord. At that point, what is the point of the society? So God has two... No, there are two things he can do. Number one, he can let it be. He can just let it continue. That is his wrath. Because that means generations after generations are going to go to hell. There's no grace. There's nothing. His mercy would be to put an end to it. Not allow that society to continue graceless. right? Or to reform it if it could be reformed. Hence, martyrs and other ways to bring about a reformation of the society. Right? And we should take hope in what I consider to be a prophetic call by Pope John Paul II. When he said, evangelization of the third millennium. I don't think the Holy Spirit will allow a Pope to you know, move all of us in error and may allow him to make that kind of proclamation. So I take it to mean God has a plan for the third millennium. The game is not over yet. Right? By a long shot. That's how I, how I look at it. Yes. Okay. So if anyone has supernatural encounters of any kind, the church has very simple and wise rules to follow. First, never trust yourself. Ever. Because none of us is smart enough that we cannot be deceived by the demons who are far more smarter than we are. So never trust yourself. In doing so, you are actually performing an act of humility, which is very pleasing to God. You're denying yourself the pleasure of thinking that an angel or a saint or whomever spoke to you. You protect yourself from pride. right? Because what happens is that if you de- declare there and then that an angel has spoke to you, you've become a pope. You've infallibly declared what happened. When in fact, the masters of mysticism... St. Teresa of Avila, St. John of the Cross, repeatedly, repeatedly insist on the fact that these things are so difficult to discern. So you don't do that. You don't trust yourself. Number two, don't talk to anybody about it. Don't talk about it. Control your tongue. Keep it to yourself. Now, you might talk to your husband or wife. Don't get me wrong. I'm saying don't sort of, you know, Talk to 300 people, call people and go to Facebook and whatever, right? Just don't do that, right? Ponder in your heart what happened. Ponder. Number three, go to confession. And then tell the priest exactly what happened. 
Now remember, that priest in the confessional is standing in place of Christ. That's the virtue of faith. doesn't matter if he's a good man, a bad man, a terrible man. He's standing by the power of the sacraments in persona Christi. Tell him exactly what happened. Don't hide anything. Number four, listen to what he says. And whatever he says, you take that as the word of Christ. Whether you like it or not, one way or the other, you take it as the word of Christ and you abide by it. That's how the church tells us to proceed. Yes, correct. So the question is, if there is an abortion and a child goes to hell, what is the good that can come out of this? Um, you can generalize that question. It doesn't have to be a child. Somebody going to hell, right? What is the good that come out of this, right? Here's what you have to keep in mind. What will make you happy in heaven isn't just God's mercy. It is God's justice. When you see things through the justice of God, you will glorify God. Right now it is hidden from us. Right? But the virtue of faith tells us that everything works for the greater glory of God. Right now we cannot see it. We can have glimpses of it, but fundamentally we don't see it. I'll give you another scenario to ponder. Suppose you meet the woman of your life and you're married. And suppose you have 10 children. And let's fast forward 500 years. You're in heaven. And your wife is in heaven. And none of your children made it. How are you going to be happy? It would not be... It it is difficult to understand it here because you do not see God's justice. But when you see everything to His justice, you glorify Him. Is there anything in Scripture that points us in this direction? Am I making that up? The book of Job. The book of Job. Job was a just man. The devil says to God, if you tempt him, he is not going to follow you. So he takes his fortune away. Job remains faithful. He takes his children away. All four are killed. He remains faithful. He sends him disease. He remains faithful. His wife doesn't stop to nag him. He remains faithful. His friends come over and nag him to say, you must have done something wrong for God to do this with you. He remains faithful. But he complains. Right? He's complaining. This and then and the other. Towards the end of the book, God himself comes down in a theophany, appears to Job. And by the way, God spoke to Job longer than anybody else in the Old Testament. Right? And when he speaks to him, it isn't nice. It isn't, well done, Job. Ten over ten. Pass all the tests. Here, have a cookie. None of of that. Who are you? Where were you when I created this? And where were you when I did that and the other? And what what does Job say at the end? Before, I did not know you. Now, I have seen you. My mouth is silent. Something happened in that theophany that is not revealed for us in the scriptures. He definitely had the mystical vision. He saw what we don't see. 
And then he said, I have nothing to say. He stopped his complaining completely. He was happy. That's what I'm talking about. You understand? So, the, so that's the virtue of hope in the goodness and faith in the goodness of God. In fact, the question was put to St. Thomas Aquinas uh, was, why is God allowing people to continue to live in hell? Why doesn't he just make them disappear? And his answer is, because the existence in hell is a greater good than non-existence. And there's a whole argument behind it. But yeah, absolutely. Yes. Very good question. How do we know the difference between a vision or a dream or between something that is real or something that is an illusion or a lie? And, well, Job saw God. Well, the reason why we know Job saw God is because Scripture is inerrant. There are no errors in Scripture. And Scripture affirms it, therefore we know it's true. That's a simple answer, right? But let's take the other case. How, do, how can I tell when I see something if it is true or false, and if it is true, if it is from God or not? The answer is, I can't. No, no, we don't. We take it to the priest. God can. But we, on our own, are easily deceived. Therefore, we take it to the priest and let the priest decide. Now, there are other characteristics that St. Teresa gives of a true presence of God. But without going through all of these, the simple rules I gave you work really well. Yes. I would say that this person should pray to God to take that dream away. Right? If you pray contrary to what you're given, then you know if it is from God or not. Because God is not going to deceive you. Ah, uh, no. It could be, but usually it isn't. The, the dreaming of somebody who you loved and you lost appearing to you over and over again is not a comfort because it persists, it keeps you in that attachment. It focuses you on the dead person as a source of your happiness, when in fact, you should be focused on God. Now, I don't want to speak about her condition and circumstances. I'm just saying, in principle, right? So, the better thing to do is to pray to God, to take that thing away, to go to the priest, to confess, and usually those things cease very quickly. It is not good for us to communicate with the dead. That's as simple as that. Okay? Yes. Yes, the broad question is, which of these laws in Leviticus stand today and which don't? Is that the broader question? Yeah. So, um, in regards to the sexual laws, the, fund the foundation is the family, which Jesus reaffirmed in the Gospels. He sent us all the way back to Genesis, one man, one woman. From there, you use that as your criteria to decide which of these laws in Leviticus stand. And they all do, pretty much. On the sexual level, none of those laws have been abrogated. On the laws pertaining to food, you don't have to even go to St. Peter's vision. Jesus himself in the Gospels affirmed that nothing that enters man makes defiles him. Right? Therefore, declaring, as the Gospels say, everything pure. Because now, this, what you see here in Leviticus, is the, sim the symbol, the pointer to the real event, which is grace. In Leviticus, you're training, think of it this way, you're training your children to run a house. You give them a small house. 
So in a small house, they're supposed to cook. and they're, supposed, they're not cooking. They're going through all the motions. Much of that will remain with them as they go into the big house. But the plastic spoons and the plastic fork, all that stays with the small house. They're not used anymore. In here, the whole idea behind the food regulations, what is pure, what is impure, is to teach them you should keep yourself away from impurity. A lot of the food, by the way, was also connected with pagan ritual. Therefore, keep yourself away from that. Don't do it just because I'm telling you to do it. Do it because you love me and you want to do the right thing. That stays. Jesus came and told us, that's not what matters. What matters is your intentions, is your actions, is your work, what's in your heart. Right? Hence, the same approach, the same vigilance that the Israelites had in observing the laws around food, we must have in observing and protecting our heart. That doesn't go away. But the specificity of the food are gone because none of that matters when it comes to grace. Make sense? You just tell them to subscribe to the Leviticus talk and then they'll take care of it. Yes. That's a very good question. Yes. So, the, the, it's hard for all of us to accept that aborted children don't go to heaven. Right? But you have to understand that nobody goes to heaven, children or otherwise, without baptism. Because heaven isn't just... It's not that if I'm good or cute or innocent, then I make it into heaven. If that was, this was the case, Jesus didn't have to come and die on the cross. Right? Heaven, in order to go to heaven, I must be divinized. Remember the whole conversation over our nature and God's nature? If we say we are God's children, then our nature must be divinized, right? But our own, we can't be divinized. So that poor child who's aborted has a human nature, right? So we think, oh, God is good, therefore on the spot he's going to have pity of him. And then, on, you know, but then that would be ignoring Christ's death on the cross. Because if God could do that, why didn't he do that before Christ came? For all the children were sacrificed to all those gods. And if he didn't do it to those children, how is he just by doing it to these children? Do you see? Yeah. We never allow our emotions to steer us in favor of the poor, like Leviticus said earlier. Neither the poor nor, nor the rich. But you must judge with, um, you know, with um, impartiality and keeping in mind the death of Jesus on the cross. Right? So we all would like somebody to find a way to get those kids in heaven. Right? But that cannot trump the death of Jesus on the cross. Because remember, none of these children, however innocent they are, can compare to the innocence of Christ on the cross. Right? Yes. Very good question. Is it the same thing in miscarriage? No, it's not. In the case of miscarriage, the church is... Uh, the, 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 the prevalent position is this. It's really simple. If your intention as parents were to baptize that child, that desire carries over. Right? It's your desire to have that child baptized. And because of your blessing, essentially, over that child, God honors that. All right. Yes. No, no, no. We're only talking about abortion. Not this. Now, obviously, if you're miscarrying a child and you didn't have any intention to baptize him, God honors that as well. Right? So the is- it's what the parents want. That's why St. Paul says... Do not bless, I mean, bless and do not curse. Because the curse of a parent is very powerful and binding. Yeah. 
Yes. Okay. If that's what you mean, if, if, if by spiritual baptism you mean a prayer to God, yes, a prayer, a, a prayer to God. Okay, let's be very clear. We're not baptizing anybody. We're not baptizing the dead. Yeah? By saying this prayer, I'm not baptizing somebody. Because that would be contrary to our faith. I don't know about that. I, I, I really don't know about that. The reason is because you cannot break the, the, uh, the covenant within the family. That is so strong. So, for instance, the church is against, is against us baptizing somebody else's ch- uh, kid. You can't just, let's say, take the example of a kid. He's alive. He's your brother's kid. And they don't want to baptize him. So you decide to take the kid in secret and baptize him. The church is against that. You're not allowed to do it. Absolutely. Because remember, baptism is part of catechesis. That's why for grown-ups, we catechize them first, then baptize them. Well, what about kids? Cardinal Ratzinger right, explained in one of his books that we simply switch the order. We're baptizing them with the understanding that the parents are going to form these kids catechetically. Right? Okay. So, we, baptism, aside from catechesis, makes no sense. Oh, that's fine. But we can't adopt somebody else's kid. If, Rich, like if, if what Rich was saying, you're interceding to God to find a way, you're asking God to find some way to get these kids in heaven. Remember, by the way, we, the church, is bound by the sacraments. Yes? We can't find a way to get to heaven without baptism. God is not bound by the sacraments. Okay, yeah, that's fine. That's absolutely fine. That's a beautiful prayer. You're, you know someone, a child, who may be in danger of ad- ab- abortion, and you have decided to pray for that child, and you're asking God's intercession. That's absolutely beautiful. Do that all day long. But I thought we're talking about children who have been aborted. They're beyond our grasp, Right? We can generally pray, God, find a way to get them in heaven. Right? This is the desire of the church. But so far, God has not revealed to us how this might happen. Now, the church, the Pope, uh, Pope uh, uh, Benedict XVI had established the commission, back to your question, to study the question of limbo. And it's been now four years. And they have released some preliminary documents which basically didn't... It's, it's still inconclusive. Now, we're, we're waiting and see if there is... A, not what the commission is going to come up with, but if there's going to be an authoritative document from the magisterium speaking about limbo. That would be um, welcome for all of us. But so far, as I said, it's really, really tough because of the covenant and the family. You bless your children. You curse your children. God respects that. Yeah, so bless your children every day. You got powers in your hand. Use it. Yes, totally. Just as when somebody takes a gun and unjustly kills somebody else, that person is dead. If God allows somebody to kill using a physical weapon, we are spiritual beings. Why would he not allow somebody to hurt someone else spiritually? Yes, last question. Um, um, Our understanding is that hell is within the earth. We've always spoken of hell as underground. I don't think it was meant only metaphorically. I think it is going to be physical location, absolutely, especially after the second judgment, because everyone will have their bodies. And if you have a physical body, you better be somewhere. Make sense? Yeah. Uh, 
So heaven, likewise, it needs to be someplace because we're going to have bodies. Right? So therefore, there, are, there is a material aspect to both. Now, purgatory may not. Maybe, I mean, it's a spiritual location. It is not a material location. Right? Um, and what that means, we don't, we don't know. It's beyond us to even understand what that means. Right? Likewise for the angels. Where were the angels before? I mean, where are they now? But they're somewhere, right? It's beyond us. It's, it's not in our capacity at this point to comprehend these concepts. We have to have something physical to deal with, yeah? Is hell going to be destroyed after the last judgment? No. Hell is an everlasting place. We are created. We will never be non-existent. We'll never go to non-existence. We'll continue to exist. Purgatory will be gone after the second judgment, but not, well, I don't know when after the second judgment, but eventually purgatory is gone, and you're left with heaven and hell and earth. That's another supposition for those who have, like for instance, the aborted children. The, the, the idea is that um, St. Thomas teaches that they will be living on earth in a state of natural happiness, but they will never be able to see the beatific vision. Right? So, okay, yes. Can we ask the souls in purgatory to pray for us? Uh, yes, you can, because, because they're going to make it into heaven. So, you pray for them now, and then when they make it into heaven, their prayer is really powerful. So, you're making friends. Well, don't take that for the real reason, but I mean, I know, I know, I know. I'm just encouraging you. I'm just giving you reasons to, like carrot, to pray for the, those. But pray for them even more so than those who live here. Okay? Yes. Okay, the 1,000 years. All I'm going to tell you is that if you're interested, subscribe to the Book of Revelation study that we've done in Corbono. I go into full details of this whole business of millennium. Basically, the millennium is right now. A millennium, a thousand, is ten times ten times ten. Ten means fullness. It's a symbol. It means Fullness. In Hebrew, if you want to have a superlative, you repeat something three times. Holy, holy, holy. So, ten, ten, ten is the fullness of fullness. It can't get any fuller than that. It's the age of the church that we're living through. Right? It's not after this final judgment, there's going to be a thousand years of... What is thousand years for people who are eternal? It's nothing. Right? It's, just, it's not a physical number. It is a symbol of complete fullness that we begin to live with right now in here before the second judgment and don't read any of the protestant analysis that they do it's i mean they're, they're entertaining but they're not i i suggest as i said you, you can subscribe to the corbono series on revelation if you want something a lot shorter pick the one from scott Hahn. okay god bless you see you next week We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.